Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret. Welcome to part two of this podcast series called For Such a Time as This. In the first session, if you recall, we were emphasizing the Bible verse, Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read that from the New American Standard. So in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8, we read, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it is so clear, I think, to all of us, that this is a verse that we would say is for such a time as this, borrowing that text from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14. Such a time as this today, we're in a worldwide crisis. There's a coronavirus epidemic. We're surrounded by chaos and panic, sickness, death, and fear and worry. And so in here, Paul is teaching us that in everything, obviously, is, is to pray. And we would say quite definitely this verse is for such a time as this. But Light of Menorah is trying to look at these Bible verses in their historical context. In Lesson 1, we actually took a look at the historical background of the letter to the Philippians, probably written around the time of 60 AD, and there is no New Testament. And so we're trying to understand how those first believers heard Paul's letter for the first time, and specifically this specific instruction in Philippians 4, 6 through 8. In other words, what did they see? And what did they understand? The only scriptures they had were the Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. I'm going to call it the Hebrew scriptures to depend upon, to relate to. And if we can walk in their footsteps, walk on their streets, walk on their paths, and to understand how they may have understood God's word, they might be able to help us in our understanding of God's word, and that our understanding would be broadened and enhanced. Now in episode one of the series, those Messianic Jews, and they taught this to the Messianic Gentiles, they knew the Hebrew Old Testament pictures, because Hebrew is a language of picture and actions. And so we considered the possibility, and there's many ways those Messianic Jews would have related to this verse. We considered one in Psalm 91, verse 1. And in Psalm 91, verse 1, we will read, and again from the New American Standard, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So in episode 1, we talked about shelter is the Hebrew word seter, you might spell it S-E-T-T-E-R if you were transliterating the Hebrew, and it means a hidden encampment, a hidden camp. And then the second phrase, that he who dwells in the hidden encampment of God is in the shadow of the Lord, but it says Almighty, and that is Shaddai, El Shaddai. He who dwells in the hidden encampment of the Lord is in the shadow of El Shaddai, 
constantly. And that's the name Shaddai that God used to introduce himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prior to Moses. This is powerful. It's as if Paul is saying to them, from their connection to the Hebrew Scriptures, it's like Paul is saying, don't worry, don't be anxious. Since as you are son or daughters of the God of Abraham, we are sons or daughters of the God of Abraham. We dwell in a hidden camp, always so near to the Father, that we live in his shadow continually. The shadow of El Shaddai. So this is a possible way they may have understood the phrase of be anxious for nothing. And like I said, this is only one of many examples. And so for us too, as we try to reconnect how those Jewish believers back 2,000 years ago may have connected this to the Bible, to the Hebrew Scriptures, it helps us and enriches our view of Paul's words. Now for us, we live in this 21st century and it's called the postmodern era. In the postmodern view, it's anti-rigid doctrine, anti-rigid ideology. More of a relativistic point of view. In other words, a postmodern person might say, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. So truth is relative to the person. Very skeptical. And we live in this age. Now, Bible history, studying God's word in context, studying his Bible from the view of archaeology, history, geography, customs and culture, customs and culture, the Jewish roots of our faith, and even the languages of the ancient Middle East, not only the language of Hebrew, but also Greek, Latin. But if we actually put the Bible into its historical context, this gives us a weapon, it gives us a tool to combat the relativistic dismissal of the historicity of God's word. In the Archaeological Study Bible from Zondervan Publishings, they have, right at the beginning of the Bible, they have uh, two pages on about this Bible, which talks about the importance of Bible history and putting the Bible in context. I suggest that if you have a chance, read that. It's I think it's very important. But there could be that you would say, wait a minute, I, I don't hold to this. And there are Christians that say, no, we're, we're not postmodern. We... We're not anti-rigid ideology or, or rigid doctrine. There's a quote in here in the Archaeological Study Bible about those that don't hold to the postmodern view. And let's just take a look at that quote. Further, as the quote begins, many well-intentioned readers, although not fully committed to a postmodern way of thinking, many of them tend to interpret the Bible strictly in terms of their own experiences and standards without ever considering what a prophet or apostle was saying to the people of his own day. An awareness of the beliefs, conflicts, history, and habits of the people of biblical times forces us to confront questions like, what did Paul actually mean when he wrote these words to the Corinthian church, or to the church at Ephesus, or to the church 
in Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, or to the church in Philippi. And so indeed, as we put the Bible into its historical context, we have this tool to actually combat this postmodern way of thinking about God's Word. I remember I was told a story one time of a graduate student at a renowned um, seminary, Christian seminary. This guy was getting his master's degree in theology. He was asked about archaeology and Bible history and how it supports the Bible. And this young scholar, going for his master's degree in theology and becoming a future pastor, he said there's no need for Bible history and biblical archaeology is, is really worthless. He said that Bible history changes meaning for each generation and each person. He said it was a living document, evolving, changing for each generation and culture. In other words, whatever you want the Bible to mean to yourself, then fine. And again, it comes back to that postmodern worldview of whatever your truth is your truth and whatever my truth is my truth. But God has stated in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord and I do not change. Malachi 3.6. In Psalm 119, verse 89, it says, His word, or David is writing, Thy word is settled in heaven. That Hebrew word there, settled, is natsav. And it's very interesting when you take a look at the picture, the conceptual meaning of the word natsav, settled. It means to set, to place, or fixed, or settled. In other words, this is not changed. The meaning here is clear that it's settled. We see the same ideas in Hebrew 13.8, it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Revelation 1.8, the Lord God is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come. God does not change, and his world word is settled. We're putting the Bible into its historical context. We reject the postmodern worldview uh, and we do say, no, there is a specific meaning. And when we go back 2,000 years ago to those first Christians in the city of Philippi to try to understand how they may have looked at this verse, and this is our goal, there is a specific solid meaning there. It doesn't change meaning per culture. And once we do, I believe our faith is strengthened and our Bible understanding definitely is enhanced. It's as if the Lord fans the flames of a fire in our spirit, in our souls. So let's continue to seek that fire of the spirit that we that cannot be quenched. Well, we've got the fire, but let it let he let him fan the flames. Let our faith be enhanced in him. So now, in session one, we consider the phrase "be anxious for nothing, but in everything." Now let's consider the phrase by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Again, a Jew 2,000 years ago, all they had was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. How may they have understood this? Let's take a look at a few things. One, the word prayer in this phrase is the Greek word prosuke. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Now, we know that in about the 3rd century B.C., uh, the Bible was actually translated uh, from the Hebrew to the Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, 
if we have um, a Greek word in the New Testament, we could take it to the Septuagint and try to see what Hebrew word that Greek word translated. So here, the English word is prayer, the Greek word is prosoke, and it translates the uh, Hebrew word tefillah that is found uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. So prosoke translates tefillah, the Septuagint. And what's interesting, tefillah gives us a picture. It's a picture of judgment or decision of deciding between one thing and another. Isn't that interesting? The word supplication is deasis. And in deasis, and we go into the Septuagint, the only place I found that deasis is used in the Hebrew scriptures is in 1 Kings 8.28. And the Hebrew word is tekhina, means supplication. But again, there's an added picture here. And Paul is teaching Hebrew concepts to those who understand Hebrew, but there were many Gentiles who obviously did not understand Hebrew, and so he's teaching it in the Greek language. So in the Hebrew, I think perhaps Paul is trying to get at the fact of tekina. It's supplication. It's an entreaty, okay, to one in power, or submitting a petition, or your request, or a plea to a higher authority. So this is very interesting in terms of taking a look at the word prayer and taking the word supplication. Thanksgiving is pretty clear. The Greek word there is Eucharistina. Eucharist. There's no Hebrew equivalent, but it just simply is Thanksgiving. And I, that's pretty clear. Now, this phrase, by prayer and supplication, with Thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what is Paul saying here? How do you let your request be made known to God? When we take a look at the phrase, Paul is trying to teach, okay, uh, you're going to let your request be made known to God. Guess what? This is how you're going to do it. You're going to do it by, by prayer. Tefillah. Huh. Now, this is very interesting because we know prayer is a communication with God. And there are many Hebrew words that are translated to the one English word, prayer. This is one of them, tefillah. And this tefillah is a judgment, it's a decision. We are communicating with God, and it's almost as if we're, we're seeking a judgment, we're seeking a decision. Now, to a Jew 2,000 years ago, with only the Hebrew Scriptures, this makes sense. Who's God? God is a king over all the earth and judge. Just for an example... Let's go to Isaiah 33, verse 22. Isaiah 33, verse 22. We read, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So God is the judge, the lawgiver, and the king. He is the one who saves us. Let's go to Psalm 75, verse 7. Psalm 75, verse 7. We read, but God is the judge. He who puts down one and exalts another. We'll go to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Exodus 6, chapter 6, verse 6. And here is God talking to Moses. And he's saying, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with, outstretched, uh, with an outstretched arm and with great 
judgments. And finally, let's take a look at Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt. Again, this is God speaking to Moses. On that night, then I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It seems a real possibility that a Messianic Jew 2,000 years ago would relate all of this to the phrase, by prayer, with supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And your requests, that's the Greek word, aitama, or a petition or request. So they're coming before the supreme king, the supreme judge of the universe, the lawgiver. And they're saying, oh Lord God, we're seeking judgment from you. We're going to submit our case before you. We're going to, our petition before the Lord. And before we leave, before we leave the presence of the supreme judge to obviously submit our entreaty before the ultimate power of the universe, we're going to give thanks. Thanks for his grace so that we can come to him. Thanks to him, since by his word he is the judge against even our strong enemies. Thank him, since he is the one who saved his people from the bond of Egypt. He kept them safe during the plagues. How much more can he save us with the circumstances we're in today? Messianic Jews would thank him since as his righteous people, he hears our prayer even before we ask. This is amazing. He hears our prayer even before we ask. Now in Matthew 6, 8, Jesus says this. It's right before the Lord's Prayer. Don't you know that your Father already knows what you need before you even ask? And Jesus is not teaching anything new. He's reminding us of what's in the Hebrew Scriptures. As we take a look at Isaiah 65, 24, we read this. It will also come to pass that before they call, before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Jesus, God, is only referring to this verse, or more than likely referring to this verse, in the Hebrew Scriptures. God knows what we need before we ask. What a way to thank him. Think about the circumstances that we're in today. Think about the coronavirus, our worries and our concerns and the chaos around us. As his people, as sons and daughters of Abraham, according to the book of Galatians and Paul's own writing, we call the supreme judge, the supreme lawgiver, Abba, we call him Daddy. And we're in Daddy's shadow constantly. And he already knows what we need before we ask. What a way to thank him. As we put down our requests. As we put down our petitions before him. And I happened to bump into a website where there are seven prayers God answers. Only seven. Only seven? What about Isaiah 65, 24? We just read it. Before they call, in every instance, God hears us. That makes no sense that there's only seven prayers God answers. Also, in our generation, we have the name it and claim it people. In other words, they might look at the verse that we're looking at, Philippians 4, 6-8, and, and with thanksgiving. In other words, thank God that 
he gives you exactly what you're asking for. See, the Bible doesn't understand say that. When we go back to the way the Jews understood that 2,000 years ago, it's different. So in our name it and claim it, we thank him for giving you exactly what you wanted. And here we go, only applying his word according to our own views without understanding how it relates, especially to those Jews 2,000 years ago and the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Something like that where they misuse Philippians 4, 6 through 8 and say thank him for what you need is the basis of the prosperity gospel. Those so-called Christian scholars who say you need this for your ministry, you need $1,000, you need $10,000, no problem. Give it to God and he will give it to you. You need a car, you need a plane, no. So those first Christians show us a deeper and more profound understanding. We live in his hidden encampment. We are never out of his shadow, out of the shadow of El Shaddai. So daddy is saying, don't be anxious. Don't be pulled one way or another by crisis and chaos around us. Abba loves us. He opens the door to his throne so we can come in. He wants us. He wants to hear us. He wants to hear our requests and petitions. He's, he's the righteous judge who will save us. He's the one. And so why are we thankful? We're thankful because he already knows what we need before we ask. He is watching over us. We are thankful because he is the supreme judge. He is the supreme lawgiver. We call him Abba. Wow, such an amazing love. We loved him because he first loved us. This is in 1 John 4, 19. He loved us first. In session three, we'll continue with our study because we've been to the throne room. He's heard our requests and our petition. Now what? What's next? It says that Abba gives us his shalom, his peace, which is beyond all human comprehension and it's going to be guarding our hearts and our minds in christ jesus shalom what does that mean many say well it's peace well peace from what peace of mind absence of war and our hearts are in christ jesus our hearts are in christ jesus what might that mean how may have those messianic jews and gentiles 2,000 years ago, in the city of Philippi, have understood this. And how can they help us deepen our understanding? God willing, he will show us in session three. Shalom.